Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, Texas Ranger. All right. I've noticed that you seem to be tailoring these for the particular episode now. I, I don't know if I uh, said that too often and now you feel obligated to. But yeah, uh, you, pre- way. You, pressure, you pressured me into it and I'm going to go with it because um, as everyone knows, if uh, someone gives you peer pressure, you should just give into it. So Absolutely. that's how I've been doing it. <laughs> That's and, an important um, lesson to learn. Yeah. If we've but, taught uh, you anything, it's given the peer pressure. And uh, yes. so that's what I'm going to do for each of these. It'll, it'll still be a quick, quippy, uh, delightful uh, reference, but it'll, it'll be uh, tied in, weaved into the tapestry of the episode. Woven. Wonderful. The tapestry of the episode. And it is delightful. So that <laughs> relates. Um, because to nothing about this, scene- this movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, it I mean, uh, the word delightful. This is not a delightful. delightful. That's it's true. A good no, movie. it is a, it's a good movie. Yeah. So what is it? It is uh, my pick for our season on the films of 1996. And it is John Sayles' Lone Star, which does involve a Texas Ranger only briefly, though. Uh, it's mainly a sheriff in Texas who is the main uh, character in this movie. But we do see a Texas Ranger. And it is a crime drama slash Western murder mystery uh, it's a lot of things. It's a, it's a sprawling film, a portrait of this uh, small Texas town, uh, mainly starring Chris Cooper as the sheriff who is investigating a uh, cold case, I guess we could call it. They discover a, uh, a skeleton in the desert and he's trying to figure out who it is and how they died and how it relates to his own father, who was previously the sheriff of the county. Yeah, I wouldn't even call it a cold case because there was no case before that's true found this. that's true yeah so he plays sam deeds and uh his father buddy deeds is a legend he is the uh the paul bunyan of sheriffs in frontera texas yes rico is it rio rio county not rico county in texas so and this was a it is my pick and i love it but it was also a successful and acclaimed film as well. Uh, It grossed $13 million at the box office on a $3 million budget. So it was a small scale movie uh, with small but significant success. It was nominated for an Oscar uh, for Best Original Screenplay and for a Golden Globe for Best Original Screenplay as well. Uh, It did not win those awards, but still, uh, that's a pretty significant achievement. And it did win an Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Actress for Elizabeth Pena, who plays sort of the love interest of Chris Cooper's character, his uh, former teenage girlfriend, who is now a school teacher in this uh, in this small Texas town. And she's fantastic in this movie, I think. So deservedly, she won that award. And it was very well reviewed. Uh, Siskel and Ebert uh, gave it two thumbs up and were raving about it. Uh, in general about John Sayles, but uh, in particular about this as one of his best films. Roger Ebert in his review said, Lone Star is a great American movie, one of the few to seriously try to regard with open eyes the way we live now. Set in a town that until very recently was rigidly segregated, it shows how Chicanos, Blacks, Whites, and Indians share a common history and how they knew one another and dealt with one another in ways that were off the official map. 
This film is a wonder, the best work yet by one of our most original and independent filmmakers. And after it is over, you begin to think about it, its meanings begin to flower. So uh, yeah, Sales was already a pretty accomplished, uh, acclaimed filmmaker at this point. Eight Men Out, I think, was probably his most uh, famous film before this. But this this movie really, I think it might still be his most acclaimed movie and maybe even his, maybe not his most famous, maybe not as much as Eight Men Out, but but number two, I would say, certainly. Ebert also has it at number four on his list of top 10 of 96. Siskel had it at number five and uh, also at number four, Time Magazine. Yeah. Top 10. It was... It was certainly, I think that's probably how I heard about it uh, to begin with in 96 is because of the the reviews and maybe even from uh, from Siskel and Ebert themselves. And David Anson in Newsweek said, Sales invests all his characters with depths and nuances increasingly rare in American movies. He takes his sweet time laying out his themes and disclosing his secrets. But if the storytelling sometimes threatens to become languid, the diversions serve a purpose. The payoff comes at the end, when the myriad threads pull together with a shock like a noose tightening around your neck. Built with old-fashioned craftsmanship, Lone Star is not a movie you'll quickly forget. It may not dazzle you with its flash, but it has more on its mind than all the summer would-be blockbusters put together. And I guess it did come out over the summer, so that was kind of a counter-programming thing. I noticed on Siskel and Ebert, they review this in the same episode that they review the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Eraser, which I've not seen but I'm sure it's just as good. I saw a racer. The point of that last review though, that that's uh, that last quote that sticks with me is uh, wow. Does he ratchet things up at the end there? That yes. last scene, you know, you think of memorable last scenes and uh, something like uh, seven or usual suspects. And this one, a movie without Kevin Spacey, this last scene really, really takes this to a whole new level though. Huh? It does. I mean, and it's you're talking about those scenes where it's kind of this intense, like, uh, danger feeling. And this movie, what's great about that last scene, I think, is that it does hit you with these, like, insane revelations that in a lot of movies would be, like, absurdly melodramatic. But it does it in this very understated way that is true to the characters. And it allows the movie to end on this kind of sweet romantic note, even after the revelations that, you know, are not really uh you think that would lead to something the opposite of that um yeah and not just that scene the scene before i mean the way everything builds on the last piece is one of the very very um best things about this and why sales got those screenplay nods because like each scene it seems to be tying into an earlier scene and building block and building block until like you hit these boiling points and uh he pays them all off yeah, absolutely. And it's, it is it is that that kind of tapestry of weaving all those plots together. And that's something that Siskel and Ebert mentioned when they're talking about it, about how the writing in this movie is so sophisticated and so impressive. And I think Siskel said something like, I want him to teach a class about how he wrote this movie. Um, I think that's fair because you see these, I mean, we've all seen ensemble pieces where like they try to tie in characters here and there, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But What's so good is you kind of see these characters individually and then you see how they tie into, if not everybody else, multiple other characters in the film. Yeah, and I, I like also that, that while they do tie in, it's it doesn't feel the need to make everybody connect like one-to-one, like a sort of connect the dots thing. And we can have subplots that kind of go in their own directions and don't all, you know, converge necessarily, but they all 
combine to give you the portrait of this town, as as these reviews are saying, that that's really the subject of the story as much as the murder mystery or as much as uh, Sam Deeds, Chris Cooper's character, as much of, as his background. It's just the, the town and the history of the town is the subject of the movie. Yeah, and that's another good point. And we've talked about it before, how environment is a character and how it can enhance a story. And I, I really enjoyed that about this kind of learning about this border town and all the different elements that go into make it a a working living habitat. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one semi-critical piece here, although overall a positive review, but potentially interesting point here from uh, Ken Tucker in entertainment weekly, he says, Uh, As he did in the little seen but fascinating City of Hope from 1991, Sales uses a large cast to interweave various stories with smooth skill. And in Lone Star, he throws in a lot of revisionist Mexican-American history that occasionally becomes heavy-handed. The biggest problem with Lone Star is that colorful Charlie Wade, that's the sheriff played by Chris Christopherson, isn't the center of the movie. It's bland Sam Deeds. Chris Cooper isn't a compelling enough movie star to carry us along some of the film's more languid twists and turns. He can't hold the screen in his love scenes with the crackling Kurt Elizabeth Pena. Sales might have done better to switch roles between Cooper and the more charismatic Matthew McConaughey, who's getting major buildup for the upcoming A Time to Kill. But Sales has surrounded his hero with other more interesting characters and has warmed Lone Star with the glow of a humanist optimism rare in contemporary movies. So I don't agree about, I think Chris Cooper is fantastic in this movie, but I thought it was interesting, especially the way he points to the up and coming Matthew McConaughey uh, as a an alternate star of this movie. Well, McConaughey does, you know, he has such a presence about him. Even in this, you watch and it's, you know, it's one of his early roles, but, you know, you're drawn to him. As far as Cooper, I believe he's got an Oscar on his shelf with your name on it, Tucker, your face, baby. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing about McConaughey too is that I, like I, I think I was saying, I haven't, I hadn't seen this movie in a little while. I'd seen it probably two or three times total. So I, I, I'd at least seen it again since the first time I saw it, but it still had been a while. And I, in my mind, I remembered Matthew McConaughey as so much more of a presence in this movie than he is. He's in like three scenes. And in two of those scenes, he barely has any lines, but he makes such an impression in those brief moments that you think, I, at least for me, I think back on this as like, oh, this is a Matthew McConaughey movie where it's really not. He really has a small part, but he makes the most of that in a big way. Yes. Uh, let me, let me take, that but before that i'll give tucker a little credit i do think a little of the expositiony mexican-american border history it does get a little talky from point to point you know you could use a little less of that maybe but um you know he totally is misguided when he says like well matthew mcconaughey is more charismatic and that's who should be the lead the the lead is Literally, the character is not supposed to be the legend. The legend's supposed to be the dead father who McConaughey plays. So you, the character of the legend is the one that you almost want to see in bits and like is bigger than life, whereas the son is the guy who can never li- live up to him, including perhaps as a uh, public figure here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely on that. And I, I think Tucker is wrong 
uh, about Chris Cooper. I think his performance is perfect and it fits the character exactly. And I think you're right. I mean, not that Matthew McConaughey couldn't have done this, but I think if McConaughey played the role, he would need to have played it like Chris Cooper played it and, and tone it down so that there is that contrast between him and the legendary bigger than life father. So yeah, I, I just was, you know, I just thought it was an interesting point to bring up there. Uh, I do agree with you that it can be heavy handed in, in the social commentary. I think having seen a lot of other John Sayles movies, some of which, especially his later movies, the movies that he made after this are really heavy handed that this movie balances that I think quite well versus some, some stuff he did later, but there definitely are moments in this movie where, uh, characters are kind of like, let me tell you a story about, injustice or whatever. And they just kind of go on about it. Um, and that's maybe a little frustrating, but I think overall it balances that, uh, fairly well. So even, even coming back to it now, I felt that that, uh, was handled pretty effectively. Jason, had you ever seen this one before? Never saw it. So I'm glad you picked it, Josh. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I saw it, like I said, I think I saw it in 1996, not in the theater, but I remember this was definitely a movie that I rented and I don't know why if I had read a review or or seen it on Siskel and Ebert or knew who, uh, I don't know, Matthew McConaughey was for some reason. But I remember just like being blown away by this movie when I first watched it, not really knowing much about it and not having ever seen a John Sayles movie before. And since then, I've seen quite a few of his films, although they're still... Uh, quite a few notable sales movies that I've not seen. Um, but this was the first one and it just made me, it, it opened up, you know, it's one of those things where it kind of like opens up a world. You're like, wow, this, this filmmaker is so talented and I can't wait to see more of his movies. And I'm sure I went back to the video store to try to rent another John sales movie, whether that was eight men out or something else. Um, and I have watched it. I, I, the last time I saw it, I think was probably, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago or something. I remember, uh, there was a, a film series at one of the libraries here and they asked the uh, Las Vegas film critics society to pick movies. And this was my pick, uh, for them to show. And I, I went and did a little introduction to the, you know, 10 people or whatever who showed up, but God bless them for, uh, <laughs> listening to me, listening to me talk about this movie. I, uh, you know, I've obviously seen eight men out, um, you know, I'm a sports guy. You, you um, are a sports guy. Yeah. But I do. I do. He is a major figure, not in the mainstream sense, but in the independent sense. And I want to go back and, you know, kind of go through his catalog, which I've never done. Yeah. And there's still quite, like I said, there's quite a few that I still haven't seen. And I think some of his other movies are fantastic, including Eight Men Out. I think some of his movies are a little heavy handed and didactic, It was as we were saying, but they're always interesting. And he is a major, a major indie figure um, and, and was already at this point. Um, I mean, all of these reviews really mention it as like, oh, this is the new John Sayles movie. And, you know, they were all these critics were already anticipating uh, what he was going to do next. And I think this and was- Josh. Yes, they were right at the time. This was the new John Sayles movie. <laughs> so right. What I'm saying, it was it was a movie where already he was a filmmaker that that people were excited to see what he was going to do, having seen the previous movies that he'd made. It wasn't a sort of new discovery for most people coming to this movie at the time, the way it was for me as you know a 16 year old or however old I was at the time. And if you said it today, you'd be wrong. This is not the new John Sayles movie. You know, these are the insights that people come to this podcast for, I think, right there. That's well, I'll have more of them in our next segment when we give our overall impressions of Lone Star, the not do John Sales movie. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we're talking about my pick, John Sayles' Lone Star. And I think always with these with these personal pick episodes, uh, I think, especially because they're often movies that we haven't seen in a while, I, I at least for me, I'm always a little apprehensive, like, oh, will I like this movie as much as I did the last time I saw it? Will I come into the episode thinking, oh, I shouldn't have picked this? But I, I like this movie a lot. I think it's a fantastic movie. We're talking about uh, how effective the writing is in this movie. And it really is just a, a very, very well-written movie. It's a fascinating character study on multiple different characters. And it does have a lot to say about the culture of this border town, even if it is at times a little blunt about it and literally just says it directly to your face as the viewer. Um, I, I think it it works on on pretty much every level. And I was glad to watch it again. And uh, I was pretty satisfied with it. So, Jason, do you think this was a good one for me to pick? I, I do think it was a good one for you to pick. I, I really like this movie. Also, I was a little worried at first when you start seeing those initial flashbacks of if they were necessary and how they would tie together. But obviously, he does it in a really excellent way. And also, from a filmmaking standpoint, that kind of like shade um, from one, you know, to the from what like the current scene to the flashback scene in the same location in the same shot is pretty cool too, you know? Um, so yeah, I liked it. Um, I thought the characters for the most part were really well drawn and um, interesting. And then there were certain characters you see once or twice and then they never come back and, you know, Hey, it's two hours and 15 minutes. Could it have been two hours and three minutes? Probably, but we're nitpicking here. Yeah, it didn't really feel that long to me. I, I definitely, like, I had forgotten that it was that long. And when I started watching it, I was like, oh, wow, this is a long movie. I don't know if it's going to be a bit of a chore. But I think you're right that it could have been trimmed down, especially there are certain subplots that don't, like I was saying before, they don't all necessarily converge to one single point at the end of the movie. But I think one of the strengths of the movie is that it, it is that they don't converge, is that it's just this wide-ranging portrait of the town and so I think all of those elements are valuable. Like, yeah, you could have cut a few scenes maybe and it wouldn't have affected the overall picture of the film. But I think having all of that in there makes it a richer experience to watch it. So I, I, I like that about, about the movie. And there are some characters that kind of are, you know, less important. I was thinking of, I think his name is, is it Enrique? The, is it busboy or, or cook at Elizabeth Pena's mother? her restaurant that she runs. And he's he's also sort of like a coyote and he's bringing people across the border from Mexico. And he has a one kind of big moment where he um, asks for help from uh, Pilar's mother. And Mercedes. Who has been, Mercedes, there you go. Who has previously been what I think is a really interesting character, this Mexican immigrant who's been in the country now for decades. And she is criticizing illegal immigrants and she's calling the border patrol. And that's how we've seen her. And then he comes and he's in distress and he asks her for help and she decides to give it to him. So he was one character that there were a couple of scenes with him early in the movie. And I thought like, who is this guy and why are we following him? And he did seem like a little superfluous. To me. And yeah, you know that he plays into Mercedes story. And I agree with you, this conservative immigrant, right, where you would kind of think she would have uh, a little more love for uh, people trying to cross the border. And then you get her flashback and it's kind of an interesting uh, way to show why she does help 
uh, Enrique and his fiance. Um, uh, you know, and then Pilar's son, we kind of see, and he's just kind of there to almost in a way bring Pilar, Pilar and uh, Sam together, you know, but we don't really ever see him again. So things like that. All right, whatever. But overall, like the, the, we keep using the word tapestry, you know, the big characters of Sam and Pilar and Mercedes and Delmore and Otis and Charlie, like they all work and Buddy Hollis, they all work so well. And the way they connect is like, yeah, man, I'm, I, I, you know, you said Ebert's like, he should teach a class on this. I would love to see, did he outline this? Did he have it all in his head? How much of background did he write on each of these characters? It's really, really intricate what he does here. Yeah, it really is. And I think the way that the things come back around is, is really effective. And you were talking about uh, from a visual standpoint, the way that they he depicts those flashbacks in the same shot where it just kind of the camera drifts across and we realize we've gone from the past to the present or from the present to the past. I thought that was really well done. And there really aren't that many. I, I think going back to what I was saying about McConaughey, he's only in like three scenes. And so those are the main flashback scenes. And each of those gives you a really clear picture of who he is, of who Buddy is. And that's the driving force of this story is, is Sam trying to figure out, is Buddy a murderer? Did he kill his predecessor, this kind of nasty racist sheriff played by Chris Christopherson? That's what drives the story. And each of those scenes, not only does it tell you more about the murder mystery and whether Buddy really did this or not, but it tells you about who Buddy is and who Sam is and how that's all played into the present day. And I think that idea of like generational legacy is the theme of this movie. In Sam's story with Buddy and in, in Delmar's story, that's Joe Morton's character with his father, Otis, who owns the local roadhouse. Uh, and with Pilar and her mother as well, it's all about how things are passed down from parents to children. And that's what ties it together as much as, as the town ties it together, I think. Yeah, you're right. And in all of those flashbacks you're seeing, Hollis and Otis and how they connect and everything. So that's also important. And the way they play into the reveal of the mysteries along with Buddy, that all just like it could all fall apart if it's not done expertly and it is done expertly. Yeah, it really is. And that uh, that obviously that starts with the writing and the writing is really important. But I think as much as the writing in this movie is great and it is great, you have to give a lot of credit to the acting as well. And uh, a bunch of these actors are people that John Sayles had worked with before. Uh, Joe Morton was the star of The Brother from Another Planet, which is an early John Sayles movie. And Chris Cooper, who starred in Matawan, which is also probably one of John Sayles' most famous films about the uh, coal miners' strike, the union. So he really knows how to work well with these actors. And those performances... They, they bring the writing to life and they also give you that emotional sense of those characters, the, the sort of deeper things that are going on below the surface, even though like, for example, if Sam is kind of like subdued and low key as a person, he's clearly got a lot of anguish about uh, his relationship with his father and about the legacy of that. And so I think that really comes across well in those performances and Elizabeth Pena as well, who's fantastic. You know, she won... The Supporting Actress Award, and I think deservedly so. Uh, she's great. And they have really good chemistry and a good dynamic, I think, uh, the two of them together. It's almost like they're related. <laughs> yes. <laughs> almost. Um, yeah, hey, so I agree with you. I mean, look, this is uh, 
we were we've talked about the acting and the scenes, uh, you know, the kind of environment and uh, the camera work, which I I saw a review that had dinged the camera work on it, but for me, like it's not the most uh, like stylized or fancy, but it all works. Like I don't know what um, the criticism is, but I, I thought from the first shot where you're kind of uh, panning across this sprawling Texas uh, desert, you know, and you're getting these bright pops of green from the cactuses and the bush. Like, I was like, whoa, this is this is something I'm interested in already just from the scenery, you know? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Sales isn't known for being like a visual stylist. He's known as a writer more than anything, I think. And he's worked on a lot of, you know, he's like a script doctor. That's kind of his thing that he's done as it worked at like uncredited and a lot of blockbuster movies. And so, of course, the writing is really good. But I, I do think the visual style in this movie is impressive. And we talked a couple times about that, the way that he presents flashbacks, you know, within the same shot. And that's a really striking thing. And that's a clear visual choice that he makes. And and you're right about the opening scene too. It does draw you in as it's panning. And, and there's great writing in that scene too. And of course, the first two characters that we see are these very minor characters, uh, the guy with the metal detector and his friend. And you get a sense of their little bickering friendship just within that scene. And they show up one other time, I think, together. And uh, the one character, he has his own little subplot. He's uh, they're, Well, they're both officers on the military base and he's in a romance with a fellow officer. And even though they're very minor and maybe they represent part of what could have potentially been cut as we were talking about, you know, to kind of cut the fat out of this movie, I feel like those little minor characters, the way they're written and the way they're performed is part of what makes this movie so good. I agree. I, uh, I cared about all the characters, however minor they were, you know? And I think the way he ties up the stories, a lot of the time he puts just the smallest button on it. Of course, the big mystery, you know, we do get the reveals that we need. But to the minor characters, we just get that one little bit that shows you where the story's going. And that's enough as a viewer to leave it as a satisfying conclusion to those stories. So it's just a good piece, man. Good, good film. Yes, it, it is a good film. I'm glad that you think so. If I was one of the 10 people who showed up for your film series pick, I'd have been like, hey, good pick for a film series, Josh. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I don't I don't recall if anyone said anything to me uh, at the time, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to know that you would have. Well, that's what that's that's what I would have said. I'd have been like, hey, Josh, good pick. Thank you. For a film series. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Real compliment. I appreciate that. I would have said, hey, Josh, if you ever get a podcast about mm -hmm. films and you have a mm -hmm. pick, you should consider this. I, yeah. And, you know, weirdly enough, I did. So it was almost like as if you said it to me back then, even though you didn't and you weren't there. So, yeah, we don't want to confuse the listeners. I did not ever say that to you. No, I feel like this no. is happening in two different timelines, not unlike yeah. the movie. It is. Much it is like really. Lone Star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, let's, let's, uh, I, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about was like performance wise and also maybe uh, from the perspective of like, should things have been cut is Francis McDormand's character, who is the ex-wife of Sam Deeds. Yes. Let's talk about her. And uh, I'll let you go first. I have her in my notes as well. Bunny. Yes, Bunny, 
who is his ex-wife. And there's just one scene where he drives out to San Antonio. And it's really, again, it's sort of a superfluous scene. It's an excuse for him to get some old things of his father's that could easily have just been, you know, in a box in his house or something. It wasn't necessary to take this detour from a narrative perspective. But it gives you an insight into kind of what his life was like before he returned to his hometown and became the sheriff. And we see her and she's a very like, I feel like Frances McDormand never plays this kind of character. She's this like, I mean, first of all, her name is Bunny and she's this kind of manic, hyperactive, uh, you know, dits in a way who's obsessed with football. And at first it's like, well, she's kind of annoying. And maybe this character is a little over the top to contrast with Elizabeth Pena's character with Pilar, who's so down to earth and smart and clearly is right for Sam. Um, but I like that it also gives you a sense of her desperation. I mean, she's clearly, she's she's on some pills and she feels a little lost now that Sam is no longer in her life, even though obviously they were not a match to be married. She's been, you know, kind of mistreated by her father who looks down on her, who previously was Sam's employer in some vague business that we never really learn what it is. So I like that scene, even though coming into it this time, I was like, oh, maybe this scene doesn't work. So what, what did you think of it? I agree. I thought, first of all, I, I marked that down because of her performance. She's, by the way, good, good little year for her in 1996, huh? Uh, in yeah, Fargo. this in Fargo, she, yes. She did all right. Um, but yeah, this is a completely, uh, you know, high energy, high strung performance. And the character clearly has some mental issues going on, which they discuss with the pills and everything. And uh, um, they are so contrasting you wonder like how that romance budded, you know? Yes. And, um, uh, you know, we know Sam is like kind of held on to this teenage love he's had for Pilar for so long. Is this just something he did to like try to move on or dull the pain or whatever it is, you know, like, Hey, it's something right. Um, I like these scenes in movies. I always like this, these scenes in movies. And we talk about Fargo. I remember, uh, Siskel and Ebert talking about that scene where uh, McDormand's character goes and meets um, her old high school classmate, right? And it's like a very, you could cut the scene and it doesn't change the narrative structure of the movie, but you learn so much about the character or the town or situation. I thought that was a very good scene. I, I am glad you brought it up. Yeah, and actually I was going to say that it reminds me of that scene in Fargo with uh, with Steve Park as the the weird classmate who's kind of obsessed with Marge Gunderson uh, with Francis McDormand's character. And, and I think a lot of people, if they are critical of Fargo, they point to that scene as like, why is this in the movie? But I, I agree that in both cases, it adds a lot to your understanding of the characters and it's worth having in here. And Francis McDormand, of course, is a great actor. Yeah, we know that. Um, and Fargo, by the way, which you know, killed at the Oscars that year. That's what won the best original screenplay, which Lone Star was nominated for. The other movie I wanted to talk about that we have discussed in the past that have dealt with so many of these themes in a completely different location is Do the Right Thing, you know? Small neighborhood, race relations, interconnected stories, the tapestry of, um, you know, a living environment. Like, this really had a lot of the same type of um, storytelling devices that Do the Right Thing had in a totally different setting and tone and energy. 
Yeah, I know. I absolutely, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's there's also that tension between the different groups and who has sort of like ownership of the town or who feels like it's it's their neighborhood or their town, you know, and do the right thing. It's about Danny Aiello and the, the Italians who feel like this was their uh, neighborhood and now it's been kind of overrun. And of course, the black characters in that movie feel like, no, it's their neighborhood and the white people are kind of intruding in it. And here too, we have the whites who have, you know, now become outnumbered by the Mexican immigrants. But of course it was Mexicans who were there first. And so there's that tension. We have the scene where they're talking about textbooks and what kind of history to teach, which is again, another scene that you could say, well, this doesn't really bear on the plot and we could get rid of it, but it shows you that tension in the town. And then it's interesting to see also that we have the the character, I think his name is Jorge, the guy who is supposedly in line next to be the mayor after Hollis retires. And, you know, he's Mexican, but he's kind of going along with the white establishment and what they want in order to smooth his way into the mayor's office. So there is a, a very similar dynamic there that I thought was interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. Also, uh, Sam's deputy, who's Mexican and, you know, Sam keep saying they don't need a uh, a bigger jail. It's a waste of taxpayer money. But uh, Hollis and Jorge kind of get behind his deputy. Hey, you should run for sheriff next. And he tells Sam that. And, and Sam's like, yeah, you would make a great sheriff. Do you think that we need a new jail? And he says, it's a complicated issue. And it's like the most political <laughs> answer you could give. Him. You would make a good sheriff, right? But, um, you know, this goes a little deeper, just like kind of in do the right thing. We see those the perspective of the Korean grocers for a minute. We also get that kind of history lesson of the black and Seminole uh, mixture, the black Seminoles. And then also that scene with Sam, where he goes to the native American uh, who knows his father from long ago, who's kind of got his roadside stand of, you know, anything you might ever want to buy. I don't know. It looks like a, some type of formal garage sale. And he, that character is interesting. He's only in there for one scene, but he reveals a lot about Buddy, but he also has this speech about why he doesn't want to live on the reservation because of all the politics that go on there. So you're really learning a lot with each of these, um, you know, new uh, new characters, new scenes. Just every bit adds on to the last thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I feel like it, nothing here really is superfluous. Nothing really needed to be cut, that all of it adds to your sense of the town. And like, yeah, we, we solved the murder mystery and we find out who killed Charlie Wade and that's important, but it's not necessarily more important than getting a feel for this town and coming away from the movie feeling like you really understand the whole range of people who live there. So, yeah. I don't think it's more important. I do think it's very satisfying, those last few scenes, how these big mysteries tie up. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying it's not important. It is it is important. And it's good that there's a satisfying mystery. I think if you had an unsatisfying mystery or if they kind of dismissed the idea of the mystery and ignored it, then it wouldn't matter that they gave you this great picture of the town because it would be frustrating. But I think he balances it really well and he he gives you clues going along the way. I was wondering, too, as I was watching the movie this time, knowing how it ends, uh, do you come to the conclusion? I mean, we kind of danced around the spoiler, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, the 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 fact that Sam this is and- the big this is the big spoiler. If you don't want to hear this, yes. this is this is essential. If you haven't seen the movie, maybe watch the movie now because Josh is talking about the last scene here. <laughs> 
but I think it's okay for us to talk about uh, in sure. this 24-year-old movie. So uh, <laughs> as we reveal in the last scene, Sam and Pilar, who have this great romance, it's a really effective romance, are in fact half-siblings. They're both, uh, the their father is Buddy, the Matthew McConaughey character. And so I was wondering, knowing that that's the, the case, as I was watching the movie, do you think people would figure it out? Or did you figure it out not having seen the movie? I didn't figure it out at all. And they do mention of, you know, kind of uh, Buddy's romance with uh, Mercedes. And it never occurred to me. And I was like, whoa, this like, you know, when we get to our ratings in one minute, that definitely bumped it up for me by a by a good half uh, whatever we're going to do it, you know. So it was a, it was quite a revelation. And uh, and, you know, the way they talked about it. I mean, I think you could have just cut the scene there at the revelation, but the way they talked about it was very, um, yeah, very satisfying as well. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think it's the kind of thing that in a lot of movies, like I was saying before, it's like the most absurd melodramatic, it's almost like a cliche of some kind of soap opera-y melodramatic movie where it's like secret siblings and incest and all that kind of stuff that's, that's absurd, but it's handled in such this naturalistic way. And it's weird to get to the point in that movie where you're like rooting for the brother and sister to have a romantic relationship, but you really are. And there's that flashback where um, Buddy and Mercedes are kind of uh, traipsing through the drive-through, um, just looking in cars to, you know, find the young Sam and young Pilar. Uh, you know, they're, they're, there's some hanky-panky going on and they both get in trouble, but neither of them ever say why. You just think it's like, hey, I don't want you to date a Mexican, and hey, I don't want you to date a white guy, you know? So, right. Um, right. So, I mean, now that you gave that away. Um, <laughs> yes, I gave the whole thing away. We left the mystery. We left the mystery unsolved of who really did kill uh, Charlie, but otherwise, you gave away the big mystery, Josh. So. There you go. Well, should we talk about who killed Charlie? Should we just go go all in on it? Dave, what do you think? Do it. Did you you saw this right, Dave? Did we just ruin this whole movie for you? No, no, I watched it too. I. I what did you think of the movie? You didn't time. tell us. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot actually. I am really glad that uh, Josh picked this one. I I'd always seen the poster, the the box art. I remember back in the day seeing it and thinking it looked cool, and I just never saw it. But it was uh, it was a great movie. Hey, Dave, if you had gone to Josh's film series ten years ago, what would you have told him about his pick? <laughs> Are you ready for the twist? I was there. No, I wasn't. Just kidding. But uh, <laughs> you and Josh were in a, a, a romance that you yeah, didn't even yeah. know about at the we're time. Sec- we're secretly siblings. That's, the That's right. <laughs> this is getting salacious. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, well, if we want to go full spoiler, right? They so- they always they always lead it to believe that you know because Sam has some uh, let's say. Uh, on uh, untapped anger towards Buddy, you know, or on, uh, you know, he hasn't forgiven his father for their relationship. So he thinks that Buddy must have killed uh, Charlie. And then we get the scene at the, I, I guess, the only, still the only black bar, black club in town, which is now owned by Otis. And uh, Buddy uh, and uh, Hollis is there too, the mayor. And uh, Sam presents his theory that Buddy killed Charlie. And he stole money from him, you know, the $10,000 to make it look like that Charlie just left town. And then we get to the real answer, which is that Hollis did it. 
Yes, because he was protecting Otis from being murdered, much like Charlie Wade murdered Mercedes' first husband for no reason. Yes. Well, not for no reason. He clearly murders these people because he feels like they're crossing him and he has to be in charge of everything. So Mercedes' husband is running illegal immigrants across the border without giving a kickback to Charlie. And Otis is running like a a gambling ring out of the bar without giving a kickback to Charlie. And so that's, I mean, not that obviously none of it's justified, but that's his reasoning that he's essentially a crime boss. Right. And they're both minorities. So let's that that too. Yeah. No, he's clearly quite racist. He's a he's he's a bad guy. It's good that he was killed, really. I mean, we're Chris Christopherson is good at playing this really hateable character. And even though maybe, you know, Buddy is not as amazing as everyone makes him out to be, and I like that there was a complexity to that character that Sam still says, you know what? I don't like him. He was my father who's a bad father. But the fact that he took over, clearly he was better for the town than Charlie was. And it was good that Charlie was uh, put out of the way, I think. And spoilers. There you go. So let's rate uh, it, Josh. Let's rate it. Do you want to rate it out of uh, out of five uh, oxidized uh, sheriff's badges? I think so. Okay. Um, I'm going to give it four, I'm going to give it four, uh, oxidized sheriff badges. It was at three and a half for me. Um, like we said, it's two hours and 15 minutes, uh, a little long, but that's okay. And then that last, the, the sizzle of the last 10 minutes bumped it to four for me, but I will say this, I would happily watch this again. Yeah, I think having seen it multiple times, I think it holds up really well to, to rewatches and I would give it four out of five as well. Uh, I do really like this movie and uh, I think it's fantastic. Maybe some of the the heavy handedness that we mentioned is was probably the main drawback for me this time, but it is really, really good. So Dave, what would you rate this? Uh, I give it a four as well, guys. All right. Triple endorsement of this movie from all of us here at Austin. There you go. Yes. So we will come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Lone Star. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1996, we've been talking about my personal pick, John Sayles' Lone Star, which thankfully we all enjoyed. It's always nice to pick a movie that other people will enjoy watching as well. And the legacy of this movie, I mean, I think we can start with John Sayles. This might be the height of his career or or the the last height of his career, let's say. I mean, you could argue that that maybe Eight Men Out was the height of his career, but but pretty much everything he did after this movie was not nearly as successful uh, or as acclaimed. But I think some of his later movies are quite good. I like Casa de los Babies with uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and uh, Sunshine, Sunshine State with uh, Edie Falco. And uh, he hasn't directed in a while. The last movie he made was a movie called Go for Sisters in 2013, which uh, is not that great. Um, but I, I like him a lot. He's really interesting. And there's still some of his early films that I haven't seen. So Jason, have you seen other John Sayles other than Eight Men Out? Uh, Eight Men Out. And of course, um, the major legacy points that he directed, the music videos for Born in the USA, I'm on Fire and Glory Days for Bruce Springsteen. Oh, you know, wow. I, I didn't know that, but that's good to know. Yeah, I know you wanted me to mention that, Josh. So I it's did important. it. It's relevant. Um, it is relevant. So, and Springsteen actually gave him a song that, if not for this, it wasn't in this movie, but it was for a, a movie of his in the 90s. So that was cool. Anyway, I haven't, I've only seen Eight Men Out, but like I said, I'm going to go back and start with the return of the Sea Caucus 7. 
I'll work my way forward from there. All right. Yeah, I've seen The Return of the Seacock is seven, which is good. And is actually like, is one of those very small independent movies that you watch that and you see how it had a big influence on like the indie movies in the 90s, these like small scale movies about like young people just kind of talking. You can see a lot of uh, Linklater, I'm sure, took a lot of influence from John Sayles, especially that movie. And if we're going to talk about, you know, movies that this influenced, uh, we have already covered another one, which would uh, be No Country for Old Men, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That that kind of almost noirish uh, Western mix. Uh, I definitely think that this movie had a big influence there. Um, I think this uh, this was certainly, as as we quoted in one of those early reviews, this was right at the beginning of Matthew McConaughey's like ascent to stardom. This was right before A Time to Kill came out. And I think this movie is a great showcase for his talents and for the kind of stuff that he would do later in his career after he became this kind of big bloated movie star. And then we got the reconnaissance when he did more of these smaller, serious, dramatic roles. And I think that those those sort of harken back to what he does here in this movie. The movie it reminded me the most of was uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like that movie either. I, I, I remember you didn't like that one, but it, I don't like I, it either. I think it has a, a lot of the same kind of thing going on. I, I, feel. I mean, I may, maybe it, it, but talk about heavy handed. That movie is yeah. just like massively heavy handed from beginning to end. And uh, yeah. I think this movie is much more graceful than that. I agree with Josh, and I don't like agreeing with Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I will say that sales, uh, there's especially a movie called Silver City that he made, uh, I think maybe in the mid 2000s or something like that, that is just like every awful, like heavy handed liberal talking point that you can imagine. So he didn't always get it right. That, that, that movie is one where he gets it wrong. But I think when he gets it right, he's one of the best at kind of making social commentary and, and in integrating it with a really fascinating narrative as he does in this movie. And that's what he does in his better films. I'd like, uh, I hope he's got one more in him. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. It's been quite a while and I'm not sure what he's been doing. And like I said, he's also known for being this kind of script doctor. Right. And he's worked, he's worked in an, in an uncredited capacity uh, on a lot of uh, Hollywood movies. And I'm not sure if he still does that, but that's, uh, he's, he's also known for like using the money that he makes on those movies to finance his own smaller projects. But I could absolutely see him doing like a Netflix movie or something like that. I feel like that would, that would suit him pretty well. Or a limited Um, series. I know he's directed some or written some TV. It might be good for him to like, there are so many, like we said, like intersecting stories, like maybe this works as, uh, or, you know, his, Skill set works in that limited series capacity. Yeah, I would be happy to see something from him on that on that front. Just just something at all. Like I said, Go for Sisters, which is his last movie, is really not great. So it would be nice to see something uh, something more from him from there. Uh, I also was interested, and I'm not sure I should have maybe looked this up. And Jason, you mentioned Chris Cooper's Oscar, but he's always a supporting actor. This is a rare movie where he gets to be the lead actor and and really like make the most of it. Well, we I think we mentioned it before on um man, maybe it was 2007 of a movie that we wanted to cover but didn't Breach, yes. which he stars in. Awesome movie and man does he tear that thing up. Yeah, I agree. I like that movie a lot and I think that's another one where part of what's good about that movie is it lets Chris Cooper be the lead when he doesn't usually get the chance to do that. So, uh I was definitely like I you know, going back to that review we quoted, which I think is completely wrong. He's great in this, and uh, 
he's so young. I think he's always playing like authority figures now, like bosses and dads and stuff. But he's he's strikingly uh, seemed to me, you know, quite young in this movie. Um, I also wanted to mention Elizabeth Pena, who is also fantastic here. And she was, you know, also never really got a chance to be a lead, but was a very uh, steadily working character actor for years after this. She actually, she died in 2014. And I remember seeing the last movie that she was in, which was this kind of crappy indie movie called The Song of Sway Lake. But even in something that nobody saw like that, you know, she she's a bright spot in it. So I was always... Nice to see her if it was on a TV show or wherever it was, uh, she would always make something something a little better, I would think. Fair point. Thank you. <laughs> any other any other legacy uh things that you want to talk about related to this movie, Jason? No, I think I think we hit it, Josh. I think we have much like the town itself covered the tapestry of Lone Star. We have, we have indeed. Dave, did you have any other, having seen it and liked it, did you have any other thoughts on Lone Star or its legacy? No, you guys just hit it. I was just going to say about how great it is to see Chris Cooper in a leading role. And I'm glad you guys brought it up because it's it's too rare. It is too rare. Hopefully he'll get the chance to do that. Maybe he can work on that John Sales Limited series. I mean, that would, be, that would be the lead role. He's not going to get many leading roles in feature films, certainly not mainstream ones, but he could totally be a leading role in an FX series or something. He could, he could. And I think that would be a great place for him. So hopefully we'll get to see that from him. So that's Lone Star. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. Oh, you sure can. Whether you're quarantining or not, please go to awesomemovieyear.com and then say, hey, I can't really follow this, but you know, you know what I can follow? Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason award-winning website. You got to check it out. Yeah, please. <laughs> all the all the webbies for goforjason.com, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, I'm at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at signalbleed on Twitter. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to this podcast and follow us on social media at PiecingPod and also join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. What do we have on our next episode, Jason? Josh, we have a movie I'm excited for you to see. Uh, one I saw a very, very long time ago and I'm excited to rewatch. It's our foreign film, Kolya, from the Czech Republic, which did win the both the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. I Like I said, I haven't seen it and you were a big proponent of it, so it'll be interesting to check that out. So tune in next time for Kolya and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. 